shit with you all physically here in the parking lot, but also for those joining us virtually through our live stream. And uh, it's just a pleasure. One of the servants here. And we are beginning a new series here on uh, the doctrine and the biblical perspective on marriage. We've entitled this series Real Marriage. And one of the reasons that the leadership at this church wanted to do a series on marriage was because our spiritual theme and focus for this past ministry year is Christ in community to care, counsel, and commit. And our heart was to allow the gospel speak into central relationships of our culture and humanity and see how those relationships can be grounded in and stabilized in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's no other human relationship that is more foundational or intimate or close than husband and wife. And so we're going to start this series and see how the Spirit and the Word of God will speak to us on real marriage. And we begin in the beginning of the Bible from Genesis chapter 2. So I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. It will be projected up on the screen for those of you worshiping with us virtually, but also in the bulletin for those of you who choose to read the verses in that way. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. So let me read that for us here today. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And this is God's word for us today. And as we begin this series on uh, real marriage, uh, just a, a word as we've done this series back in 2016 that if you're young in college or New Life Youth, or New Life Kids, or if you're single, um, I encourage you not to tune out because there are several reasons why this series is also relevant to you as a church family. Because one, it does give you a preview of what potentially may be your calling if you get married. Secondly, it gives you real topics for you to pray about and for regarding the family members and married couples of this church. And perhaps most importantly, when we talk about husband and wife, it is a window in a gospel picture of what our Lord and Savior Jesus has done for the church. So whether you're young and old, single and married, an empty nester, newlywed, at the end of the day, marriage will give you a glimpse, a window, a real life picture into what Jesus has done for us. And so I pray that you'd be encouraged and as we begin this series. And I'll be honest here, as we begin this series, COVID has been as Elder Daniel has prayed, a challenging year. And one of those challenges is that husbands and wives have been together more than they ever have in recent years because you're staying at home, 
you're working from home, you're 24-7 around home, and sometimes too much of a good thing can bring out a lot of difficulty and sin. And so there are a good number of marriages that have been challenging and difficult and have been brought out of certain issues that they had to reconcile and work through. And so I pray that this series could speak directly into this. And we begin here in Genesis 2 by looking at the biblical vision for marriage. What is the vision for marriage? And Genesis in the creation of this world, creation of humanity, gives us a vision for not just marriage, but also the entire universe in this world. And so I want to consider with you, what is God's vision for marriage along three lines, three perspectives? One, we'll look at the definition of marriage. Secondly, we'll look at the purpose of marriage. And then thirdly, we'll look at the intimacy of marriage. So trying to paint broad strokes, a biblical vision of marriage, we'll look at the definition, its purpose, and its intimacy. So let's look at this together, you and me. Let's look at what is the biblical definition of marriage because when you take a moment look at what the world says through music and pop culture, social media, the world generally defines marriage as personal fulfillment. Notions of love, romantic sensibilities, this idea of fate bringing two people together, as well as discovering who your soulmate is. And if you ever watch Korean dramas or Asian dramas, they capture this notion so well. So does Walt Disney. Their stories are all about discovering yourself, personal fulfillment, defining who you are in this expressive individualistic society. That's how the world will define marriage. Find your soulmate. Find your fulfillment. Someone who can complete you and make you happy. It is entirely self-concentrated and self-centric. But the Bible defines marriage in less glorious terms, but the reality and meaning is so much better. The Bible defines marriage as a covenant. A covenant. Sounds sort of legal, kind of cold, but it's deeply rich. A covenant, friends, if you remember, is basically a contract between two parties. And a biblical covenant is one in which God establishes his relationship, his intentionality, his purpose for you. So all throughout the Bible, we see God establishing a covenant with his people, and it's modeled in the context of marriage as well. So a covenant involves two parties. A covenant involves terms. There are stipulations. And the covenant involves blessings as well as cursings, depending on how well you do with your part of the covenant. It also means that a covenant is public, meaning that it's something where it declares publicly the nature of your relationship. That's why if you get married, you have a public declaration of your marital vows. In other words, the Bible defines marriage as a covenant, which means this. Your marriage is defined as being legal, binding, and is public. It's not defined first and foremost by personal fulfillment and discovering your soulmate. It's defined in the way that God defines his covenant between a purpose and reality defined by the Bible in God's eyes. It's legal, it's binding, and it's public. David Jensen has defined marriage in this way. He says, marriage represents a journey shared by two persons in covenant before God in the community of faith pledged over a lifetime. And this covenant of marriage extends not only to the couple, but to the entire community of faith. A marriage expresses public claims of God's covenantal love, 
witnessed in mutual human love. In other words, this covenant of God and his people, his love to you is shown in real time between husband and wife. And this idea of covenant is seen in verses 24 to 25, where it reads, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And that word there, hold fast, is also the word for clinging. Not in the way that you get annoyed at people, is she so clingy or he's so clingy, but the idea that God attaches himself to you. It's the same word in the Bible, in the book Hosea. If you've grown up in the church, you know that story, that God clung to his people. Hosea clung to Gomer. It's covenantal language. And that's important, friends, because I'm going to bring out why that definition is so important for you and I here today. When we think about marriage, there are those who say, in Western society, marriage is what makes the individual's happiness the ultimate value. So marriage becomes primarily an experience of romantic fulfillment because the goal is personal happiness. But the Bible sees God as the supreme goal and good. The Bible says, as it defines marriage as covenant, that the supreme good is God, and this gives us a view of marriage that's intimately and closely uniting your feelings as well as your duty. If God is the supreme good in marriage, that means it unites both your passion and your promises, because at the heart of the biblical idea of marriage is a covenant. Tim Keller, in his book, Meaning of Marriage, as he does so well, gives an analysis of how at least certain parts of our country and culture understand marriage, and he says this, Older cultures found meaning through self-denial, through giving up one's freedoms, and binding oneself to the duties of marriage and family. That was older traditions, older generations, but he says today, marriages are redefined as finding emotional and sexual fulfillment. It's a self-actualization. He's saying, in other words, where marriage was understood to be your role in society and how you can contribute to the community around you, now as we become highly individualistic, marriage has been defined simply as discovering your emotional and physical fulfillment and self-actualization. And that's completely opposite to the way that the Bible defines marriage as covenant. And so what is it so important to define and understand marriage as covenant? Well, there's a couple applications here in this first point. In the covenant, it means that the good of the relationship takes precedence over the immediate needs of the individual. Whereas you may define marriage as what can fulfill me, what makes me happy. If you understand the Bible says marriage is defined as covenant, this legal, binding, public, contractual relationship, that means it's defined in a way that the relationship takes precedence over each individual's preference. So one way to think about this is in the parent-child relationship. That's also covenantal. And the relationship takes precedence over the parent's preferences and personal needs. A parent is always, especially the mother, sacrificing, making food, disciplining, waking up in the middle of the night. They're extremely tired physically and mentally. Why do they do this? Because covenantally they love their child, but the good of the relationship takes precedence over the individual needs. And that's important because it already sets the trajectory of marriage. That a marriage covenant means that the relationship between husband and wife will always be higher and more important, take precedence over individual needs. The world's understanding is completely different. 
the world's understanding with this marketplace culture, with social media apps, everyone's on Coffee Meets Bagel or looking through Hinge. In the marketplace of consumer culture, people today stay connected only as long as they're meeting particular needs. You say, I'll connect with you, we'll date if you meet my personal need. I'll date you if you make me happy, if you help assist me in my personal dreams and accomplishments in life. It's considered common sense that love must be the response to a spontaneous desire, but never a response to a legal oath or promise or covenant. Today, the notions of love is so spontaneous as if you just fell into a ditch or you discovered it in some sort of experiential point. But the biblical sense of love flows out of this doctrine of covenant, out of a sense of public responsibility, out of a sense of an oath and a commitment. In other words, friends, the Bible defines marriage as this covenant designed by God where the value and the purpose stands outside of yourself. It's not inward. You don't look to the purpose of marriage inwardly, but you look, at, look to it through the word of God as God defines it as covenant. Because the Bible says this, love needs a framework of binding obligation to make it truly love. A covenant creates a space of security where we can open up and reveal our true selves because there is a permanence in marriage because of this covenant. Real love, the Bible says, desires this permanence, Song of Solomon chapter 8. And the covenant allows you to be truly free and secure because your purpose and meaning comes from outside of you. Marriage is designed and defined outside of you. There's a security and there's a promise, there's a foundation that you could be set free to truly reveal yourself and yet can be completely other-centered for the sake of the relationship that takes precedence even over yourself. The laws of vows and promises fits our deepest passions in the present, but it's also something the love of our hearts need in order to have security about the future. That's how the Bible defines marriage, as a covenantal relationship that ultimately reveals the relationship between Jesus and the church. But let's move on. Let's look at the second point. What is the Bible's purpose in marriage? What is the goal, in other words, of marriage? And in a word, I would say this. The purpose in God, for God's vision for marriage is glory, God's glory. Well, one way you could think about it is simply this. You want to live and have out a marriage in which God is glorified or God approves. In other words, if you look at Genesis 1 to 2, you want a marriage where your goal and purpose is for God to say through his word, this is very good. Because remember, God defines a marriage. It doesn't matter if you say it's good or the culture says it's good. It doesn't matter if your spouse says it's good. Ultimately, the goal and purpose of marriage is for God's glory, but specifically so that God sees your marriage and he says, this is very good. Well, where do I get that in the passage? Well, just a quick preview. You see this word good reflected and repeated throughout the first beginning chapters of Genesis. God created the light in chapter 1, verse 4, and God saw that the light was good. God created the earth and seas. In verse 10, it says God saw that it was good. God made the plants and vegetation. In verse 12, God saw that it was good. Verse 18, God saw that it was good. Verse 21, it was good. Verse 25, God saw that it was good in all of his creation. And finally, when he made man, in verse 31 of chapter 1, it says it was very good. And the point is that before Adam sinned and the world got decimated, before Adam ate of the forbidden fruit and sin entered into the world, Everything was perfect. Everything was really good. And with humanity, it was very good. 
But there is only one time before sin where God said, this is not good. One time in this perfect world of creation that God said is not good, and that was the fact that Adam was alone. And he says, it is not good for Adam to be alone. Friends, what is the vision and the goal and the purpose of marriage? Is to say that God designed this world and it reflects his artistry, it reflects his creativity, his purpose and design. Remember, if we were created by God, we are designed to reflect his glory. That means we have to report to the creator and we ultimately live in marriage in which God says, it is very good. That word good, what does it mean? In the Hebrew, it means it's pleasant to God, it's delightful, it's agreeable to God. The purpose is for God to say, your marriage is good, not man or culture, but God himself. That's your purpose. You glorify him. If marriage is instituted by God, in other words, it's God's design, we look to God's word to determine the purpose and the vision of marriage. We can't set up our own rules. You can't redefine marriage. You can't change the name of the game because the goal is to say, God says this marriage is really good. Okay, practically, what does that mean? God's vision for marriage is for his glory, or in other words, marriage is designed to be a reflection of his purpose and saving plan. We'll look at this later in this series, but in other words, when you look at how God says this marriage is good, he shows what that means in Ephesians chapter 5, where he says Jesus died for the church, the church was the bride of Christ, and talks about all these men and women roles, and we'll get to that point. And when we look at that, ultimately, we see this gospel relationship that the gospel helps us to understand marriage, and marriage helps us to understand the gospel. And God says, that is very good. Marriage serves as a window into the grace of Jesus. And when you begin to flesh that out, God says, it is very good. Another way to think about it is this way, friends. Very practical. The purpose of marriage is for personal holiness, not personal happiness. See, all of us enter into marriage because of personal happiness, but not personal holiness. And practically, it means this. I'm going to marry you because you'll assist me. You'll make me happy. You'll fill my emptiness. I'm lonely, and you'll make me not lonely. I have visions for my career and family and living in a house, and this husband or wife is going to help me fulfill my dream. All of that's perfectly fine, but that's not the ultimate goal. It's not personal happiness because God isn't a genie in the bottle. It's personal holiness. The main purpose of marriage is to say, as Christ reflects and loves the church, is that God is going to use marriage to make me more like Jesus. The most intimate relationship of all human relationships, God is using my spouse to reveal my sins, to challenge me to be more like Jesus, to be other-centered, to live out my covenant vows, which means that marriage is not designed ultimately for personal happiness, but for personal holiness. And when you try to live out that covenant marriage for personal holiness, then and only then, ironically, is when you'll be truly happy. We live in a culture that has been, never been so idealistic about marriage. We are so idealistic that in fact, there's no way to be happy in marriage with our individual idealism we're destined for disappointment. John Witt Jr. has once said this, the ideal of marriage as a permanent contractual union designed for the sake of mutual love, procreation, and protection is slowly giving way to a new reality of marriage as a terminal sexual contract designed for the gratification of the individual parties. The same assessment 
There are those who say the Enlightenment has privatized marriage, taking it out of the public sphere and redefined its purpose as individual self-fulfillment and gratification. Marriage used to be a public institution for the common good, but now it's a private arrangement for the satisfaction of individuals. And even these secular definitions can resonate with the Bible because the Bible says the ultimate goal is for personal holiness, human flourishing, and not personal happiness. Ernest Book Becker, the Pulitzer Prize winner in his book, The Denial of Death, I mentioned this throughout the years, that he coins this idea in this concept called apocalyptic romanticism. And basically he's saying humans naturally want to live life to the fullest and find our existence and purpose. Humans want this natural desire to be a hero in the story and to understand why we're in this world. And with the death of religion, according to Becker, who wasn't a Christian, by the way, he says, we try to find it in religion, but when that didn't work, we replaced God with romance. And he calls it apocalyptic romanticism. He calls it the relationship solution. Apocalyptic romanticism amplifies human relationships to the cosmic level like God. Where we look to find purpose and meaning in God, we now find it in the one who is our boyfriend or girlfriend. We removed God in a design for marriage and replaced him with our lover, our spouse, and gave them unbearable expectations for my transcendent desire to be meaningful in purpose and to find wholeness. He says, at one time we expected marriage and family to provide love, support, and security. But for meaning of life, hope for the future, moral compass, self-identity, we look to God in the afterlife. Today, however, our culture has taught us to believe that no one could be sure of the afterlife and identity and purpose. Therefore, we have to fill this emptiness and gap with something called romantic love. Francis, everywhere in our culture, especially among the youth in the college, this idea that relationships and boyfriends and girlfriends are just to make me happy. You see it everywhere on TikTok and social media and Instagram, all the commercials, all the songs that you listen to. They show this idea of apocalyptic romance because they talk about love as the ultimate goal. There are transcendent godlike descriptions of love and boyfriends and girlfriends and relationships that you see everywhere. In any song that you listen to, they romanticize in an apocalyptic way your relationship. Perhaps the greatest composer, arguably, of the 21st century, in one of his songs captures this idea, Justin Bieber. He says in one song, as long as you love me, we could be starving, we could be homeless, we could be broke, but as long as you love me, I'll be your platinum, I'll be your silver, I'll be your gold as long as you love me, because you're my hallelujah. Apocalyptic romanticism. Friends, what is the purpose of marriage? The world will say it's personal fulfillment, satisfaction, gratification, personal happiness, but the Bible says that approach, you're surely to die and to be doomed. God designed marriage as a covenant relationship to reflect Jesus in the church, and he says, my purpose in marriage for you ultimately is for personal holiness. So for those of you who are married, and I've counseled so many of us in the church about this, and I'm trying to work this out even for myself, we think if God could just change my spouse, then I'll be happy. That's the wrong paradigm. That's personal happiness paradigm. Personal holiness paradigm says if God will use my spouse to change me. Even in the marriage contract, if you're 1% wrong and you think your spouse is 99% 
If you think you're 99% right and your spouse is 1% wrong or even the vice versa, you always bring your 1% into the relationship first and say, this is my sin, this is my brokenness, this is my selfishness. Because you realize that at the end of the day, the paradigm is not to say, God, please change my spouse so I could be happy. You're praying, God, please change me using my spouse. The vision for marriage. Last but not least, and quickly. So we looked at the definition of marriage, the purpose of marriage. Let's look at the intimacy of marriage. Now, one of the primary design features of marriage is that it has ultimate unity and intimacy. We see this in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And that helper is referring to the wife Eve. And even in our culture, helper has such a negative connotation. But helper is actually an honorific and glorious word. Helper is used 16 out of 19 times in reference to God. And it says it's fit for him, which means that Eve is equal and adequate. In other words, it's not that he was, she was subordinate to Adam, it's that Adam needed her as an equal partner, a co-heir made in the image of God, equal dignity, honor, intellect, power, giftedness. And here, the motivation we see for marriage is not loneliness, but it's companionship, it's partnership, it's his deep intimacy. God says it's bad for Adam to be alone, so his solution was to create a companion, a partner. Friends, God could have done this so many ways, but how does he do this? He does this through a Bible study. God shows all the animals, and Adam has naming them. Friends, you realize that during the past COVID year in the pandemic, that the sales of dogs and animals has skyrocketed. I'm pretty sure so many of you have found man's best friend, and you bought a new dog, and you think, this could fill my loneliness. But one of the things that we see here in terms of this intimacy is that animals can never replace human companionship. And he makes that point because God shows all the animals and all the birds and all the, the fish of the sea, and Adam, as a representative of God, is told, name everything. And he goes through the line and sees all this creation, and he realizes as good as these animals and creatures are, they're not good enough to be the companion, the partner, to a human being, not ultimately. It was a way to teach Adam how special and unique Eve was. Eve, which means life giver. God waits for Adam to be prepared so that he could appreciate the gift of Eve, of a woman. God put Adam to sleep and made Eve out of his rib. And that's such an intimate picture highlighting the closeness and the unity between husband and wife. As Shakespeare has once said, God, the best maker of all marriages, combine your hearts in one. And that's what we see here. Look at with me verses 21 to 23. It says, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he, t he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And what this highlights, friends, is this intimate relationship that God has for marriage. Bone and by bones, flesh and my flesh. An intensity, a love, a devotion, a commitment to your spouse for one another. And it takes priority over all of these other relationships. Friends, isn't it funny that the first words of Adam before sin entered the world, the first words that I've just read in verse 23, 
was poetry. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, in intimacy and equality. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of me. The first words of the first human being in the history of humanity before sin entered the world was poetry. This romantic, intimate, united, heartfelt expression and declaration between husband and wife. Andrew Bonar has said this, there must be sleep in the first Adam before God could take out of him the ordained spouse. And there must be death in the second Adam before God could take out of him the chosen bride. More than parents, more than children, more than best friends, more than coworkers, more than money, more than entertainment, their energy, their thoughts between Adam and Eve, their heart are for each other. The wife is bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. They are one. The Puritan Matthew Henry said this, the woman is not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. The intimacy, the closeness. And friends, this means something for those of us who are married or those of us who aspire and pray to be. The most intimate relationship that you should ever have, both physically, emotionally, and spiritually, has to be your spouse. This is just the big picture. And a preview of what's to come means this. If the most intimate relationship you have is with your spouse, that means you got to be vulnerable brothers and husbands. you got to express your emotions. you got to communicate and you got to talk. It means that there's a priority of this relationship that takes precedence over every other reality in your life. Your spouse takes precedence even over your children, even though it's messy to work that out. Your spouse takes precedence even over your own parents when you make decisions and you figure out the culture of your household. Because there's no one else that is considered bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh than your very own spouse. You're fully known and fully accepted. And what that shows us and the power that we could do this is because Jesus Christ is the one who came down and died for you. And he gave his life for you. And he has united you to himself as our great bridegroom who's known us completely, died for us, completely and rose again for our sake. Look to Jesus as your bridegroom, friends. Look to Jesus as the one who empowers you to live out your covenant relationship in marriage. Friends, let's turn to the Lord in prayer at this time. Lord, we thank you so much for the grace that we receive in your son Jesus and the wonderful biblical covenantal picture of what marriage can be. And we pray, Father, that you would continually Encourage those who are young and old and single and married and been married as newlyweds, but also for those who have been married for even 25 or more years, that we continually grow in holiness and that you'd use the covenant relationship in marriage to challenge and to change us and that we could begin to view marriage not in terms of an individual selfish paradigm, but really a biblical perspective of bringing glory to your name so that we can live in such a way that you say it was very good. We thank you, Lord, for this time. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, if you look in your bulletin, we have a wonderful time to